بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد my dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته we're going to continue from where we left off uh, last week, which was the Prophet ﷺ being brought to Waraqa ibn Nawfal. So Khadija radiallahu anha, she's emotionally supported the Prophet ﷺ, but she doesn't know how to explain what has happened to the Prophet ﷺ. So she thinks at this time, who can I take him to that can help him, you know, reach some sort of um, closure in terms of what's happened to him. And she thinks of Waraqa ibn Nawfal. Now, Warqa ibn Nawfal is a, a very unique individual. Before prophethood, him and another individual, Zayd ibn Amr, they, uh, sorry, Zayd ibn Amr, they had traveled together to Syria. Now, Waraqa and uh, Zayd, they traveled together to Syria because they were not happy with the situation in Mecca, with the idols being worshipped. So in Syria, they were looking for other answers. And this is where Warqa ibn Nawfal, he found uh, priests that were still upon the original teachings of Isa salam. That were still upon the teachings of Isa salam, and that is who he decided to follow. Whereas Zayd decided to stay amongst the Hunafa, that he wasn't content with what they were teaching, and he knew that there was something more, but he didn't know what it was, and he died from amongst the Hunafa. So that is the relationship that they had, and that is why Waraka ibn Nawfal is a very unique and fascinating uh, individual. Now, spending his time with those priests that were still upon the original deen of Isa salam, he learned Aramaic, he learned Arabic, well, he already knew Arabic, um, and then he learned some of the other languages that they spoke as well. Hebrew uh, is the other one. So you'll find other hadith that talk about him knowing Hebrew as well. So he has gone down this path, he has become a Christian, but he's very familiar with the previous texts. So now let's look at what he says. So, who during the pre-Islamic period became a Christian, we, we talked about that already, and used to write down the writing with Hebrew letters because he became familiar with the Torah. He would write from the Gospel in Hebrew as much as is possible as Allah wished for him to write. He was an old man who had lost his eyesight. So at this time, he's quite old. He's not young in age anymore. And we're going to see that becomes quite pertinent. Khadija said to Waraka, listen to the story of your nephew. So the Prophet ﷺ is related uh, to Waraka. Uh, oh my cousin, and she's related to him as well. Waraka asked, oh my nephew, what have you seen? And Allah's Messenger وسلم, described what he had seen. Waraka said, this is the same one who keeps the secrets. An-Namus, meaning the secret keeper, meaning Jibril. He is the angel of revelation. So remember we were talking about the archangels? He's referring to Jibril over here, whom Allah had sent to Moses. Now here's an interesting question. This man is a Christian, and obviously he... Jibreel came to Isa as well, but why does Waraka ibn Nawfal mention that this was the same angel that came to Moses? Why did he not mention Isa over here? Who can give me a, a, an educated guess? Because there is someone who follows the Muslim, everything. Isa was following Musa and everything? Okay, good guess, good guess. But what's something that's unique about Musa السلام, that Isa and Muhammad didn't have? 
spoke to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Yes and no. Go ahead. His brother Harul. Okay, that was something that was very unique. Excellent. One more guess. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, we'll take both of you. So go first. The Torah. That was unique to him. Excellent. And who was the other brother that spoke? He was? His birth. Okay, so his birth. So Isa was unique in that sense, not Musa from the others. Okay, so let's talk about in terms of acceptance. If you were to look at, quote unquote, the three Abrahamic faiths, you'll notice that Musa alayhi salam is accepted by all of them, right? He's a, a universal figure in that sense. Whereas the Jewish faith did not accept Isa and did not accept Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And Islam accepts Isa alayhi salam as a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not as the son of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as the Christians claimed. So over here, Warqa is trying to establish a common ground again. And this is when you go back to Surah Al-A'la, at the end of Surah Al-A'la, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tell us about? He says, Fi suhufi Ibrahima wa Musa. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention these two prophets again? Because they're universal figures amongst the different faiths when the Prophet sallallahu would interact with them. When he would interact with them, it's establishing a common ground. So here, Warqa is trying to, uh, I guess, instill in the Prophet sallallahu because he's already mentioned that this is the angel that came to Isa. So now he, uh, sorry, this is the angel that came to, to Musa. He's establishing a common ground that what you're about to experience is just a continuation of what the previous prophets have gone through. What the previous prophets have gone through. And you'll, you'll remember in the very first halaqah, this is what Imam al-Bukhari mentions in that first verse from Surah Al-Nisa. That what Muhammad sallallahu wasallam received is just a continuation from that. And then he goes on to say, I wish I were young and could live to the time when people would turn you out. And Allah's Messenger sallallahu wasallam said, will they drive me out? So this conversation is very interesting. So how does Waraka know that the Prophet ﷺ will be driven out? The general rule over here, if we learn the differentiation between a Nabi and a Rasul, a Nabi is generally universally accepted, his people do not really rebel against him, and he doesn't really come with anything new. The Rasul, he will usually have a new scripture that comes and will usually be turned away by his people. So Waraka knows that this is the last prophet that is going to be sent to mankind and he is going to be a Rasul. So by default, the Prophet ﷺ will be turned away. And then he goes on to say, I wish I were young. I wish I were young. Now, why is he saying that he wish uh, he was young? So that he could help and support the Prophet ﷺ. So here we see that he's accepted the Prophet ﷺ as a prophet and messenger. And this is going to be a very unique discussion at the end of the hadith. Did he accept Islam first or did Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu? If he accepted Islam first, then how do we reconcile that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was the first man to accept Islam? How do we reconcile it with that hadith? We'll get to that bithnillahi ta'ala. So now the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa responds to this, will they drive me out? And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa is shocked and perplexed because these are the same people that were saying, you are Al-Amin, the trustworthy one. You know, they trusted him with putting the black stone. He, they knew him to be from an honorable family. He was loved by everyone. So a person that has this stature, how could he be turned away by his people? How is this going to happen? How is this going to play out? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi is not coming with something for his own accord. He's coming with something that will benefit the people from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So why would they turn them away? So you can understand why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi is shocked. And Waraka replied in the affirmative and said, any man who has come with something similar 
to what you have brought was treated with hostility. So he's being prepared over here that, look, this is not going to be easy for you. You're going to be tested and tried, and you will have to be patient upon that. And if I should remain alive till the day when you will be turned out, I would support you strongly. I would support you strongly. So this clearly shows that he had accepted the Prophet ﷺ as a prophet and messenger. He already had the tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but he didn't say the shahada. He didn't say the shahada. There's no record of him saying the shahada. But do we have any other evidence that Waraka had accepted Islam and died upon Islam? And the answer to that is yes. In the Mustadrak of uh, Imam Hakim, there's a hadith of the Prophet وسلم, differed on this authenticity that he says, I saw one of the two gardens of Waraka ibn Nawfal in paradise. I saw one of the two gardens of Waraka ibn Nawfal in paradise. And obviously that would only be the case if Waraka had accepted Islam. So now we get to the question, if he accepted Islam, was he the first person to accept Islam or the first man to accept Islam or was Abu Bakr al-Siddiq? And how do we reconcile that? And the way that we reconcile it is that Waraka ibn Nawfal in fact was the first man to accept Islam but without being public, without actually saying the shahada. He had met the requirements for Islam, but the shahada hadn't been taught at that time. There was no shahada at that time for him to actually say. So he was actually the first man. Whereas Abu Bakr anhu was the first man to publicly accept Islam, as well as to say the shahada, as well as to say the shahada. But after a few days, Waraka died and the divine inspiration was paused for a while. So Waraka ibn Nawfal, he dies after a few days. Why is this relevant? Because later on, you may come across a hadith that says that Waraka was alive when Bilal radiallahu anhu was being per uh, persecuted. So the famous Ahadun Ahad hadith, there's a, a narration that talks that Waraka was alive at that time and could have helped Bilal radiallahu anhu, but he was unable to help. Those hadith are not authentic, and this is the stronger hadith that says that Waraka ibn Nawfal actually died at that time and divine inspiration was also paused for a while. Who knows how long Wahi was paused for from Iqra to Surat Al-Muddathir? Excellent, Jazakallah khair. The answer to that is three years. So there's a three year pause between Iqra and Surat Al-Muddathir. Now, why would Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala give a three year pause? What is the possible wisdom? This possible wisdom we've discussed in the past as well. Why is there a possible three year pause? Anyone? Go ahead. Uh, is it due to like, the next revolution having uh, rulings and ahkam legislation that comes down with them that Allah just wanted the people to stick with tawheed and the basics of the deen? So remember, the first revelation was Iqra. Those first five verses from Iqra. So Iqra bismi rabbi khalaq. Nothing else was revealed at that time. And the next verse are the first five verses of Surah Al-Muddathir. Go ahead. to test the process and to test the waters. Obviously not from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's side, but from the Prophet sallallahu side. And that's exactly it, to prepare him for what is coming next. Remember, there has to be a preparation process because we'll see that even though the Prophet sallallahu experienced this the first time, the second time was not much easier. The second time was not much easier. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows his creation best and had revelation come down all at once, it would have been too much to bear. Yet the Qur'an itself tells us that the revelation was prolonged over a period of 23 years to make the heart of the Prophet firm, to make the heart of the Prophet firm, so he's being prepared. 
Now we come to hadith number four. Now we come to hadith number four. Narrated Jabir bin Abdullah al-Ansari radiallahu anhu while talking about the period of pause and revelation, reporting the speech of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa While I was walking, all of a sudden I heard a voice from the sky. I looked up and saw the same angel who has visited me at the cave of Hira, sitting on a chair between the sky and the earth. I got afraid of him and came back home and said, wrap me in blankets. Zammiluni, zammiluni. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the following verses. Ya ayyuhal muddathir qum fa'anvir wa rabbaka fa'kabbir wa thiyabaka fa'tahir wa rujza fa'hjur. So he reveals these verses after this revelation started coming strongly, frequently, and regularly. So now, Remember Imam al-Bukhari's contribution to the uh, chronological preservation of the Qur'an. Now we know that Iqra was first and Surah Al-Muddathir was second. And this was not common knowledge at that time, but it became common knowledge after Sahih al-Bukhari. After Sahih al-Bukhari, because Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah was able to bring these ahadith together and give us this chronological order. And now we learn how the second revelation took place. The second revelation, the Prophet ﷺ is walking one day and he is called out from the sky. And it is Jibreel calling the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ, he looks everywhere and he doesn't see where the sound is coming from till he looks up and then he sees Jibreel in the sky sitting on a chair, sitting on a chair. Now is Jibreel in his original form at this time? Is he in a different form? It seems that it's a combination between the two, that he is in an angelic form, but not his massive form where he is, you know, uh, several hundred wings uh, and uh, a, a, a gigantic figure in the sky. It is a combination between the two. So he hasn't taken the appearance of Dihya al-Kalbi, nor has he taken his original appearance. He has taken an angelic appearance. And this is where he calls out, Ya ayyuhal muddathir. Now why is this relevant? Because if we go back to the revelation of Iqra, when the Prophet ﷺ went home, what did he tell Khadija radiallahu anha? Dathiruni, dathiruni. And there was no one else that was present there. It was only the Prophet ﷺ and Khadija radiallahu anha. So remember the first revelation, Jibreel pressed on the Prophet ﷺ to let him know that, look, this is a real physical occurrence that is happening. It's not a figment of your imagination. Now in this second revelation, the tactic that is used is using something that only the Prophet ﷺ and Khadija anha were privy to. No one else was privy to that conversation or to that discussion. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals the exact same title on the verb that he had used. Dathiruni, so ya ayyuhal muddathir. And this has a second function as well. This is a term of endearment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using for the Prophet ﷺ that you use a, a, a term of endearment to soften the, the, the relationship that you don't refer to someone by their first and proper name as is uh, non-customary uh, in Arabic tradition, but rather you use a, a, a nickname. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, ya ayyuhal muddathir, to soften that relationship. Now, he's referred to as, as ya ayyuhal muddathir, and this revelation comes down to him. So what does he do when he goes home? Again, he tells Khadija radiallahu anha, wrap me in blankets, cover me up, because it's still a very surreal experience. But look, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi changes the language. Instead of saying dathiruni, he says zamniluni, cover me up. So as if, you know, to, to, to gain control of the situation in his own narrative, in his own version of it, that I don't know what's going on and I need to claim control, so I'm going to change the language over here. So he says, Zammiluni, Zammiluni. 
And then we learn about the first five verses that came down. Ya ayyuhal muddathir, or the one that is wrapped up in blankets, qum fa'anthir. So here the Prophet ﷺ, now after three years, is finally given the command to preach about Islam. To finally given the command to preach about Islam. And you can imagine the immense amount of pressure that you've given the first uh, few verses of, of, of Surah Al-Alaq, and now you've given the command to warn the people, to command and, and teach the people, right? Right away, like there's... The, the Okay, I appreciate the fiqh perspective as well. Jazakallah khair, thank you so much. It's an act of ibadah, so as the, the sister is saying, that when you recite the Quran, it has to be something physical, it can't be just be something with your eyes. I'm looking for something deeper. One last person, give me something deeper, go ahead. Sorry, just one second. Sister, go ahead. Okay, we're getting there. You're a quarter of the way there. Let's see if this brother can help us out. So they're looking at how the Prophet used to recite the Quran in the right way. Okay, and there was a sister here that had her hand up as well. Go ahead. Hmm. Excellent. Sister, go ahead. Yeah. Excellent. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much. Oh, oh, Sheikh Hamza, this is an unfair advantage, but Bismillah. Bismillah. Correct. that you shouldn't interrupt and engage in other conversation. Hmm. A, a very good perspective, Jazakallah Khair Sheikh. I, I really appreciate that. So now, go ahead. Confirming the chain of narration, what does that mean exactly? Okay, excellent, good. Jazakallah khair. So now, the first thing we need to understand is how does Abdullah ibn Abbas know how the Prophet was moving his lips? He was too young. Remember, we've learned, we've studied this already. There's no way he could have known this by himself. So again, we have in the Musnad of Abu Dawud al-Tiyalisi that he asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, O Messenger of Allah, you know, how, what, what, what is this verse referring to? لا تحرك به لسانك لتعجل به And the Prophet ﷺ told him that I was moving my lips and this is what happened. So the Prophet ﷺ taught Abdullah ibn Abbas the tafsir of this ayah. So that's one dimension that we need to acknowledge. The second dimension that we need to acknowledge is the detailed preservation, not only of the Qur'an, but of the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ as well. So when you recite to the Qur'an, where are uh, our, our memorizers of Surah Yusuf? I know, Shakir, have you memorized Surah Yusuf? No? Who else has memorized Surah Yusuf here? Sheikh Hamza, anyone else? You've memorized Surah Yusuf? There's something inside Surah Yusuf that makes it very unique. Do you remember anything from Surah Yusuf that would make it unique compared to other surahs? Perhaps there's a diamond on, in a particular verse? 
a, a diamond. No? Anyone from the sisters? Exactly. What happens in that verse? Exactly. So in Surah Yusuf, there's a, you'll find that uh, one of the verses has a diamond over it. And the reason why that is, is unique over here is because the Prophet ﷺ did what is known as Ishma, which is like a diamond shape. So as he's reciting the verse, he made a diamond shape with it. And that is why it's mentioned in the Mus'haf itself that this is what you're meant to do at that time. This is what you're meant to do at that time. So it's not just about the preservation of the words, but even the actions of the Prophet ﷺ have been preserved. And this becomes part of a bigger discussion. Remember, we're talking about Kitab al-Wahi, right? This is a book of revelation. And you'll notice that the vast majority of Muslims, they have very few qualms with the preservation of the Qur'an. In fact, you know, this whole discussion of is the Qur'an preserved or not? Is it preserved uh, uh, meticulously or not? In the Muslim Ummah, this is a, a very recent discussion. But prior to that, it has been, you know, unanimously agreed that the Qur'an was preserved letter by letter, dot by dot, you know, uh, word by word, harf by harf, verse by verse. Now, this goes to a further point that it's not just the Qur'an itself, but even the Sunnah has been meticulously preserved. Even the Sunnah has been preserved meticulously. So we have in the Muslim of Abu Dawud al-Tiyadisi that Abdullah ibn Abbas learned it from the Prophet And here we have the continuation that Sa'id ibn Jubair is learning from Abdullah ibn Abbas, is learning from Abdullah ibn Abbas. Not only the tafsir of the ayah, but in fact, even how the Prophet used to do certain actions. And this is why it's so important to understand that it is the same companions and the same, you know, group of imams up to a, a certain point that taught us the Quran, that also taught us the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. So when we make a criticism in the preservation of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, at some point it becomes a criticism of the preservation of the Quran as well, because there is an overlap, because there is an overlap. And I think this discussion on the preservation of the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ has to be studied. Because, you know, as you get older, as you go to high school, university, wherever you end up, these types of, of doubts are always thrown your way. But, you know, Imam al-Bukhari dies in 256. This is, you know, 230 years after the Prophet ﷺ died. How is it possible that it could have been preserved? And this is why when you learn about the chain of narrations and how the conditions that Imam al-Bukhari had, why it was actually possible to claim that after the Qur'an that Sahih al-Bukhari is the most authentic book put forward by man. It is the most authentic book put forward by man because of these sort of things. Because of these sort of things that they paid attention to even the way the lips of the Prophet ﷺ were moving. Now we get into the tafsir of Abdullah ibn Abbas. Now we get into the tafsir of Abdullah ibn Abbas so he goes on and he says that Abdullah ibn Abbas uh, added, So Allah revealed
not to tongue concerning the Quran, to make haste therewith. It is for us to collect and give to you, O Muhammad, the ability to recite the Quran. Which means that Allah will make the Prophet ﷺ remember the portion of the Quran which was revealed at that time by heart and recite it. So now he's giving his tafsir over here. So now you see the tafsir of, the, of Abdullah bin Abbas anhumah. He's ex explaining that the Prophet ﷺ is commanded not to recite, but rather it will be instilled firmly in your heart. It will be instilled firmly in your heart. So this is a unique gift given to the Prophet ﷺ because for the vast majority of humanity, if they were just to listen to something once, they're not going to be able to memorize it. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placed it in his heart perfectly so that once he has heard it, he has automatically memorized it. He has automatically memorized it. Now, that was the gift to the, given to the Prophet ﷺ. What was the gift given to us? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, وَلَقَدْ يَسَرْنَا الْقُرْآنَ لِلذِّكْرِ فَهَلْمٍ مُدَّكِرٍ That indeed we have made the Qur'an easy as a reminder, so is there anyone that will be reminded? So while it is not as easy as it was for the Prophet ﷺ in that sense, that he hears it once and he's memorized it, but if you compare it to any other text that we have been given, or any other text that has been created by mankind, there is no book that is as easily memorizable as the Qur'an, as is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that in of itself is a miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That how many people across the globe memorize the Qur'an in a language that is foreign to them, right? Only 20% of the ummah, you know, as we know it, is native to the Arabic language. 80% is not native. Yet we see they're able to memorize the Qur'an with ease. This also shows us that memorizing of the Qur'an is tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How many people will sit down and dedicate their life to memorize the Qur'an, yet are not able to do so completely? And how many others, mashallah, are able to do it in a very short period of time? In a very, very short period of time. Sometimes a month, sometimes six months, sometimes a year, they're able to finish memorizing the Qur'an, showing us that it is purely tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a type of tawfiq that was given to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then he goes on to say, the statement of Allah, and when, you have recited, when, when we have recited it to you, O Muhammad, through Jibreel, then you follow its Qur'an recital, meaning listen to it and be silent. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is teaching him, Adab. Like Sheikh Hamza was mentioning, that when you are being taught something, it is very disrespectful to be doing something else. Like talking, like doing something that is disengaging you with what is being taught. So here the Prophet ﷺ is being taught to remain silent. And in other verses later on, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically mentions that when the Qur'an is being recited, remain silent. When the Qur'an is being recited, remain silent and pay attention. Remain silent and pay attention. So then he goes on to say, meaning listen to it uh, and be silent, then it is for us to make it clear to you. Meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explained to the Prophet wasallam the meanings of the Qur'an. Because there are words in the Qur'an that the average Arab would not know. How did the Prophet ﷺ come to know and understand those things? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him its bayan. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him its bayan. Then he goes on to say, then it is for us to make you recite it, meaning it will be clear by itself through your tongue 
Afterwards, Allah's Messenger وسلم, used to listen to Jibreel whenever he came, and after his departure, he used to recite it as Jibreel had recited, as Jibreel has recited it. So this shows us that during the lesson, pay attention to what you're being taught, focus on it, and then when the lesson is done, your job as a student is not done. Your job as a student is not done. It is to revise what you have learned. It is to revise what you have learned. And this is something that needs to be brought back. That Alhamdulillah, it's very you know, amazing that we have tens, hundreds of people attending halaqat and durus, and that is phenomenal. But that's only the first part of the equation. The second part of the equation is, you're taking notes in the halaqa, you're trying to memorize, and when the halaqa is over, you revise, and you revisit everything that you've learned, trying to make sure that you've understood it, so that when your next opportunity to learn comes, you ask your teacher, look, I didn't understand this, how do I understand this, and so on and so forth. And even amongst the companions that you establish for yourself, those that come to learn the deen together, those are relationships that will stay with you for the rest of your life. Those are relationships that will stay with you for the rest of your life. And this is what the Prophet ﷺ teaches us over here. We move on to the last hadith that we'll be taking for today, which is hadith number six, narrated by Abdullah ibn Abbas Allah's Messenger وسلم, was the most generous of all of the people. And he used to reach the peak of his generosity in the month of Ramadan when Jibreel met him. Jibreel used to meet him every night of Ramadan to teach him the Quran. Allah's Messenger وسلم, was the most generous person even more generous than the strong, uncontrollable wind in readiness and haste to do charitable deeds. Now again, we have this hadith being narrated by Abdullah ibn Abbas And this shows us that Abdullah ibn Abbas had dedicated his life to learning and studying revelation, right? So when the Prophet made that dua for him, we see how it comes true in his dedication to learning about revelation. So he constantly used to ask the Prophet ﷺ about this revelation. So now let's get uh, at you where we'll get to it. So Allah's Messenger ﷺ was the most generous. nas. What does Jude over here mean? There's two important things to understand about Jude. Number one, it is to give people before they even ask for something. It is to give people before they even ask for something. So you see someone that is hungry, before they can ask for food, you give it to them automatically, before they can even ask for it. Number two, it is to give them abundantly. It is to give them abundantly. So it's not just about giving them a little bit, but it is about giving them a lot. So now, often when we think about generosity, we think about money. Right? We think about, mashallah, this person gave a, you know, a, a large donation to the masjid or a large donation at this fundraising dinner. This is only one element of Jude, of being uh, generous. Jude is not restricted to wealth alone, but it encompasses one's time and all of the resources that a person has. So when they say that, meaning that he was the most generous with all of his resources, particularly his time. You can imagine, subhanAllah, you're coming as the final and last messenger to all of humanity, to a, a nation that has not heard of prophethood in about 600 years or so. You can imagine the level of questions that they would have. You can imagine the level of interruptions he would face. You could imagine the different types of people from educated to illiterate Bedouins that he has to deal with. So the Prophet ﷺ is required to be generous. So teaching them what they need to know 
and teaching them abundantly, but in a style that all of them can understand, in a style that all of them can understand. And then along with everything else, anytime he had something, he would give it away. A man came and liked the uh, Ethiopian cloak that the Prophet was wearing, he just commented on it and the Prophet gave it to him. And he was never asked for anything for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, except that he gave it away. And this teaches us about the character of the Prophet but it also teaches us the impact of two things. The impact of two things. Number one, the Qur'an upon the individual and righteous companionship. And righteous companionship. Here we have two things being mentioned. That the Prophet ﷺ used to recite the Qur'an with Jibreel every single night in Ramadan. So that revelation that the Prophet ﷺ is reciting, it has having an impact on it. And this shows us that the Qur'an and every good deed that we're meant to do, like the Salah, like the Dua, it is meant to have an impact upon our character. It is meant to have an impact upon our character. So it's meant, our deen is meant to be very transformative in that sense. That everything that we read from the Qur'an, everything that we read from the Sunnah, it's not allowed just for it to remain theoretical. It has to transcend and become practical. And then number two, the impact of good companionship that Jibreel, he's spending all of this time with the Prophet ﷺ. So it is only befitting that the Prophet ﷺ does exactly the same with his companions. So being generous with your time as well. And this is the impact of revelation and good companionship upon the individual. And this is why on a spiritual level, keep the Qur'an and the Sunnah as your close companions. On a practical level, surround yourself with righteous people. Surround yourself with righteous people, and that is how you transform yourself. That is how you transform yourself. Now, we know that Jibreel revised the Qur'an with the Prophet ﷺ every single night in Ramadan, and they would do a khatam of the Qur'an as much as was possible. Except in the last year, where they completed it twice, except in the last year where they completed it twice. Now, what are four things that Jibreel is giving the Prophet ﷺ through this recitation? What are four things that Jibreel is giving the Prophet ﷺ through this recitation? So number one is Tajweed. So how the Qur'an is actually meant to be recited, that is what the Prophet ﷺ is learning from him. Number two, if there is any abrogation in the Qur'an, if there's any abrogation in the Qur'an, then Jibreel is pointing that out to the Prophet wasallam. Number three, the order of the Qur'an. So as we know, the Qur'an was not sent down all in one sequence, nor was it sent down in the order that we have it in the Mus'haf. So where did that come from? That came from Jibreel teaching the Prophet wasallam. That came from Jibreel teaching the Prophet So we said Tajweed, we've said the order, we've said abrogation, and the fourth one, what was the fourth one? I cannot remember the fourth one right now, but inshallah it comes back to me and then I'll share it with you as well. So we had the order, we had abrogation, we had uh, Tajweed, Mm, Allahu Akbar, the obvious one, the obvious one to perfect the memorization of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, to perfect the memorization of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So those are the four things that Jibreel is doing with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam every night 
in Ramadan, every night in Ramadan. And then the last portion of the hadith goes on to say that the Prophet was even more generous than the uncontrollable wind, than the uncontrollable wind. What is this referring to? A person can be generous, but you can be generous to a very specific group of people. I'm generous towards my parents, towards my siblings, towards my children, and that is a valid form of generosity. But here the Prophet ﷺ is being uh, characterized as generous indiscriminately, meaning that it wasn't a matter of who you were, a noble person in society or the poorest of the poor, the most educated, the most uneducated, the Prophet ﷺ was generous towards everyone. And this is such an important characteristic to have with the most simplest of things, like starting off with giving salams to people that we know and that we don't know. If you know that someone is Muslim, give them the salams. This is part of your generosity, right? Whether you know them personally or not, you know, subhanAllah, it makes people's days that you see them on the street, they're surrounded by, by non-Muslims, you see another Muslim just saying assalamu alaikum to them, can go a, a very, very long way. So even being generous with something like that can go a very, very long way. So be indiscriminate when it comes to generosity. Be indiscriminate when it comes to generosity. So that is something that's very important to keep in mind, that yes, it's good to be generous, but it is even better to be generous indiscriminately, meaning generous towards everyone, being generous towards everyone. So now, we know that, and this is the, 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 the curveball we will conclude with, we know that the Prophet ﷺ um, tells us that Laylatul Qadr, seek it in the last 10 nights of Ramadan, and seek it in the odd last 10 nights of Ramadan. And then we know in Surah Al-Qadr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us, إِنَّا أَنزَلْنَاهُ فِي لَيْلَةِ الْقَدْرِ Then indeed we have sent down the Qur'an in Laylatul Qadr. And this hadith, it ties into the Qur'an being revealed in Ramadan and the impact it had on the Prophet and how he used to revise the Qur'an in Ramadan and how, obviously, if we, it has been mentioned, that Ramadan is meant to be the month of the Qur'an. That Ramadan is meant to be the month of the Qur'an. And the curveball I wanted to throw at you is the opinion that Laylatul Qadr could be on the 17th night of Ramadan. That Laylatul Qadr could be on the 17th night of Ramadan. Where does that actually stem from and come from? Iqra being revealed, one of the opinions is that it was revealed on the 17th night of Ramadan and also you know, the same uh, day as, uh, as Badr, right? So if it came down on the 17th of Ramadan and that is the night of Laylatul Qadr, that shows us the possibility, and this goes into a deeper discussion, is Laylatul Qadr on the same night every year or does it fluctuate? And the opinion that it fluctuates seems to have uh, more substantial evidence. How much can it fluctuate? It seems, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, that it can fluctuate in Ramadan, but the vast majority of times it will be in the odd nights of the last 10 nights of Ramadan. Is it possible to be outside of that? Yes, there's a valid opinion that states that. There's a valid opinion that states that. So that was just uh, you know, tying in some of the things that uh, I forgot to mention in, in the previous sessions. Now, there's obviously one last hadith which is left, which is the long hadith of Heraclius that comes right after this. And what I've done for that, it's already a, a pre-recorded session that inshallah, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala, I will be sending to uh, our beloved brother. Uh,
uh, Afzal, and he will be uploading uh, sometime later this week, inshallah. So that is something that you can view at your own time, and that way we would have completed all of the hadith in the book of Revelation inside Sahih al-Bukhari. We have completed all the hadith inside the book of Revelation inside Sahih al-Bukhari. It is uh, a very long hadith. Um, and then obviously my turn for the halakas has come to an end this week. And that is why we, we didn't do it in person. But I wanted to complete that series so that everyone has access to it. So that last hadith class will be available online. ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa tubu ilayk. And we open up the floor for any questions and comments you may have. Bismillah. Correct. So abrogation is referring to a nasiq wal mansukh, meaning that which has been um, taken from the Quran and left in the Quran. In the simplest source, in the simplest form, there are certain verses that were revealed to the Prophet Yet Jibreel told him, "Do not consider these verses as a part of the Quran anymore." That's in terms of its physical form. Then there are certain verses that are in the Qur'an, meaning that they're still there, but they're not meant to be implemented. But they're not meant to be implemented. So there are certain verses that they were uplifted in terms of the physical form, and certain uh, verses that were, their hukam was uplifted. So that's what we're talking about, abrogation in the Qur'an. That's what it's referring to. Yeah? It refers to a lot of things. So Exactly. So that is a, a form of abrogation. Yes. Outside of Ramadan, I'm unaware of such an opinion. All the opinions state that it has to be inside of Ramadan. Because it clearly says, Shah uh, Ramadan al Ladi unzila fihi al Quran. So it has to be in Ramadan. You're supposed to act a certain way on Laylatul Qadr, meaning in the sense that you're supposed to strive your hardest um, during that time. And then after the night is over, there's meant to be serenity and tranquility. So at that sunrise, you'll notice that it's a, a very calming and soothing sunrise. You would know that potentially you had Laylatul Qadr. There's no definite way of knowing it. And that, when you study hadith, we know that the Prophet says that I was told and informed when Laylatul Qadr was, but because the companions were arguing and bickering amongst themselves, I was made to forget. So what came thereafter is that we as an ummah will not know for surety when Laylatul Qadr is in any given year. But we strive our hardest and hope for acceptance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Go ahead. The, I, I can do it, but this is not my expertise uh, at all. So I would ask if when you see Sheikh Hatim next, ask Sheikh Hatim about that. Just tell him, I, I, can you show me what Ishmam is like in Surah Yusuf? La ta'manna, like I'm not going to do it like that, but he'll do it properly. So it's a diamond shape that the Prophet made while doing ghunna on the noon. While doing ghunna on the noon. I'll come back to you in a second. Any questions from the sisters? Bismillah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So those are all, so the sister's question is about the, the qira'at. So there's a, a deeper discussion that needs to be had where the Prophet ﷺ says that the Qur'an was revealed on seven ahruf, right? So what, does, uh, what, do, what do those ahruf mean? 
And then there's a discussion on what are the qira'at, the different modes of recitation. So in terms of the modes of recitation, yes, all of the recitations go back to the Prophet wasallam without a shadow of a doubt. The question of the seven ahruf, what does that mean? And are all of them, you know, like the, the qira'at, that's a, a much deeper discussion for a different time. But jazakallah khair. Jazakallah khair. Jazakallah khair. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much. Sister, go ahead. Alaykum salam wa Both of them. Excellent. Excellent. So the sister's question is when we mention about the order of the Quran, what is that referring to? Are we talking about the verses or are we talking about the surahs themselves? And the answer to that is both of them. The answer to that is both of them. Now, Jibreel taught the Prophet ﷺ the order of the verses and the order of the surahs. Was there ijtihad that was made in certain places? Yes, there was ijtihad that was made by the companions radiallahu anhum uh, in that way that there was no one companion that had learned the Qur'an completely from the Prophet ﷺ. There was no one companion that learned the Qur'an completely from the Prophet ﷺ. Therefore, ijtihad was required by the companions to put those pieces together. And that is why they had to come together as a collective and say, no, this is what surah should come here, this is what surah should come there. And there was that form of ijtihad that was done. But in those cases that it was recognized clearly, like the Prophet was saying that, that there is a surah that is 30 verses long, meaning referring to surah mulk, then those, it was complete, clearly known that surah mulk, these 30 verses are meant to be one surah together and is not meant to be mixed with anything else. And Allah knows best. Go ahead. Yep. Yep. Exactly, yes. Because he, he obviously would not tell future revelations that are coming down at that time. Future revelations only came down at their appointed times. And Allah knows best. Uh, there was a brother here. Him, over here next to you, yes. So, the last surah and the last ayah. right? The last complete surah that was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ was Surah Al-Nasr. So, that was the last complete surah revealed. The last verse that was revealed, difference of opinion, Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, he says it was verse 281 in Surah Al-Baqarah. Uh, and Allah knows best. Go ahead, yep. Did that come after Surah Al-Buha? I don't remember. Allah knows best. Jazakallah khair. Go ahead. Exactly. So the first time he went to Khadija radiallahu anha, he said, Dathiruni, Dathiruni. Second time he went to Khadija radiallahu anha, he said, Zamiluni, Zamiluni. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using a term of endearment, but also saying that I hear everything that you know and say and do. So have faith that this is from Allah. It's not from your nafs or from anything else. Yeah. Khair. We will conclude with that with Allah ta'ala. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Sheikh Ali Nasir is going to be starting next week, I believe.
Right, Sheikh Ali Nasser. So please do attend. Let all your family and friends know. Uh, and obviously, it's going to be a, a fantastic program for the youth as well. So do bring them out. And lastly, do not forget the youth conference happening on June 4th. They're literally about under, you know, 20% of the tickets left. So it is a free event. You do need to register though. If you do not register, unfortunately, uh, it'll make it very difficult to attend. So please do register. Just go to the IISC website and you'll find the registration link there. Anything that I've said that is correct is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone and all praise due to Him. Anything that I've said that is incorrect is from myself and Shaitan. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive me and all of you. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika shadun la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruka wa tubu ilayk. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.